podcast where I chat to professional musicians about their lives and their career paths in music. I'm Mark McDonald, a musical director and pianist, and in this episode, I chat to multi-instrumentalist, media composer, and all-round nice guy, Nick Norton-Smith. As you'll hear from our conversation, Nick has had a career full of variety, from working as a show player in London and touring with several bands, to writing music for well-known TV shows over the last 15 years. He tells me how he managed to go from picking up a saxophone for the first time when he was already at university, to playing for Frank Sinatra in Monte Carlo just 10 years later, as well as giving an insight into life as a composer for film and television. Enjoy the conversation. I had the pleasure of having a little glance over your CV beforehand, um, which you very kindly shared with me. And it literally seems like you've done a bit of everything, really. I mean, you, you've worked in the West End. You've worked as a session player, a composer, a ranger. You've been a fixer and, and an MD. Is variety really important to you or do you think it's something that's necessary now in order to have a stable career as a freelance musician? Um, I mean, that's a great question. Um, firstly, thank you for looking at my CV. I think you're probably the only person that's looked at it, <laughs> certainly in the last year, possibly... <laughs> far far longer but um i'll take that <laughs> great start um <laughs> uh, I, I i there's no simple answer to that i think um i did i guess as a freelancer a part of my brain is hardwired to say yes and um inexplicably i found myself being asked to do things that i, I never imagined being asked to do um and um sort of said yes to lots of them um and um and some were really great it's all been great um i've i've no regrets about any of those things and it wasn't a, a specific um mindset it was just sort of serendipity and coupled with um a tremendous desire not to be unemployed yeah which i think we all share absolutely yeah <laughs> um but the composing stuff sort of came about um, I was playing uh, a gig at Tombridge Castle and I went for a bite to eat with Andy Jones, um, wonderful guitarist, excellent musician. And he casually mentioned that he'd just completed a composing course with a, a guy called Amit Sen. And um, and that just immediately, my my ears sort of pricked up and I thought, yeah, this is, this is something I want to do. And... Um, and so I kind of hunted Amit down off and on for about a year or two until he eventually did his final ever course in Notting Hill. And it timed perfectly with my youngest son going to full-time education. Right. So I was gifted some time, uh, which I wouldn't have had before. Yeah. And um, and I did it. And I'd, I'd never written a note of music. I'd done a saxophone quartet arrangement of Nika's dream because I loved Hank Mobley and I loved that tune and I loved the harmony but I hadn't I'd never I'd not written any music original music prior to that point well that, I was going to ask you that so before that conversation with Andy there was no interest in composition it wasn't something that you'd done at college or anything beforehand no no I am I, um, I didn't study music um at, 
at a music college. So uh, I had, um, I've been sort of making a studio in my music room um, and I was really interested in it, but I didn't know how to write or operate the gear. And like a lot of people before and since, I bought loads of stuff that didn't know how it worked and realized I actually didn't need um, but it looked good and there were some flashing <laughs> lights. So in the short term, it was a win. Yeah. So going from that conversation, that initial conversation with uh, Andy Jones to then doing the course in composition, you've obviously come a long way since then. You know, you've written a lot of music for TV over the years, Sky Sports and MasterChef and BBC documentaries and many other things. What was your route into that from studying composition? Well, uh, a friend of a friend who knew I'd been uh, on this composing course, uh, he asked me to compose some music for a corporate video of um, Bassey Power Station by the then developers Parkview International. And it was a part CGI, part um, real world, three and a half minute film that took quite a long time to sort of develop and... Um, it was perfect for me because it enabled me to kind of find my way with it. So it was best part of probably 10 months doing that. And I was playing a show in the West End at the same time. So I was working sort of, you know, evenings, weekends, and I could work on this during the day. So it's the perfect daytime employ. You touched on the fact that you you didn't study music, but you ended up working as a freelance musician, as a as a player in the West End. What was your route into performing for a living um well i i I was studying for a chemistry degree and i realized that that wasn't going to keep me happy Hmm. actually i barely got past the first term but um i discovered sort of music and the saxophone at the end of my first year so i went and bought a tenor saxophone uh from um bill lunton's on shaftesbury avenue and um started learning to play it so by the time i finished my degree um, that's what I did, and I studied music part time for two years, and did my A level on GCSE and Grade Eight Theory and stuff like that. And then um, I gave myself a year after university, and then after a year, I thought I'd give myself another year, and then after that, I stopped counting. <laughs> so until you went to university, you hadn't picked up a saxophone. No, I didn't play music till I was nineteen. Wow, that's amazing! Because at, at that point, you know, for many of us, that's when we're taking our musical education to the next level, but to start out at that age and then within a few years already have a successful career is quite unique, I would say. It's that's amazing. Um I, I, I don't I don't know. I don't think it's particularly common necessarily, but I don't I I don't give myself any kind of pats on the back for it. It was just it's just what I did. It's just what I wanted to do. So I so I did it. And was there music at home when you were growing up? Was had it been in your life in any shape or form until that point? Yeah, my, my uncle, my mother's brother, um, left for America for two weeks and never came back. Um, he left as tour manager with Vanilla Fudge and um, and then progressed to various other acts in the States. And um, when I was 10, we went to see Billy Preston at the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park. And we had front row seats and then we went backstage and 
Billy had just finished a tour. I think it was an eight or ten month tour with the Stones. He was opening for the Stones, and um, Mick Jagger came and did a, did a sort of guest spot in Billy's gig because he just had a trio. And Mick Taylor, the then guitarist with the Stones, was also in the band. So there was lots of people backstage, and I loved it. Yeah, two years later, he came back with Rufus, and um, so I stood stood in the wings at the. Victoria Apollo and watched Rufus and Shaka Khan do their thing at 12, which is, um, yeah, I got all the autographs and met them all. And, you know, I've still got, yeah, I've still got them. Yeah. So I kind of, yeah. I like the people, you know, and I spent, um, and then when I was 16, I, um, I went to visit him in Los Angeles and, um, I didn't realize this till the day before, but he was on about to go on tour with a band called FCC who had a, a single in the charts at the time. And uh, so I was going to spend a week with him on the road. Uh, we flew to Memphis and then Muscle Shoals and stayed in this, stayed above the studio um, and then went on tour uh, through um, Tennessee initially and then Florida. And I just didn't go back. I just spent the whole month on tour with him. Um, so a real glimpse into the music industry all before even picking up an instrument and then did that influence your decision to go and buy a sax and and start learning was it about you know seeing how it worked and seeing what sort of people were involved in it is that what appealed to you I guess people talk a lot about finding your tribe I guess you know and um I you know went to America two weeks after my 16th birthday in the summer holidays and um I had such a great time that I forgot to get my exam results before going to the sixth form. Just sort of slipped off the radar. And, um, yeah, I guess I found the people that I I liked. You know, I ended up staying with the keyboard player in Muscle Shoals during the tour for a couple of days when I had a break and hung out with him and the local musos and went to their local music club because Muscle Shoals is a dry county. It was then anyway. So yeah. you'd have to go across the county line to get a beer. So we did that. So then what was the next stage for you then after finishing university, deciding that music was what you wanted to do? How did you go from that to actually working and, you know, making a, a living from it? Um, well, I was studying, I was living in Birmingham. I stayed there after my, my after my degree and, um, I was studying, I was having saxophone and flute lessons and um, studying academic stuff and started playing with various bands and had a little jazz sextet uh, with um, a wonderful trumpet player called Simon De Silva. And when he went to the Guildhall, uh, Duncan Mackay took over and we had a residency in a jazz pub that Duncan's parents ran called The Cannibal in Adderley Street. And we used to play every Sunday lunchtime. It was just the most fantastic induction to or opportunity to play in you know in a jazz pub with a receptive audience and the people you know in, around that scene Tony Dudley Evans jazz you know Birmingham jazz with, and, and Duncan's parents were just fabulous you know incredibly supportive so it was just great um so I did that's what I was doing you know um and it was just yeah it was just joyous you know I loved it um and then I got I, I I've only had I've had very few auditions in my career. And I think the first one 
second one I ever had was um, for a band that was forming out of, uh, out of some of the former members of Dex's Midnight Runners. And so I did that and I got the gig and then we got signed to Go Discs and uh, made an album at Chippy Norton Studios, which is um, quite a departure. Because you've done quite a bit of that, haven't you, playing with live acts in that part of the musical world, um, as well as you work in West End and Sessions. You've you've toured a little bit with live bands, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I um, We toured, uh, we were called the Blocks Babes, and we spent a month uh, off, off in the first six months of that year recording our album with Pete Winfield, who I'm sure you probably know is a fantastic keyboard player and... So he was fantastic, you know, and the whole thing was incredible. Um, we had our own cook. It was a residential studio. It was just nuts. And we were all on the dole. You know, no one had any money. And all of a sudden we had a chef, which is just, <laughs> just unheard of, you know. Um, yeah, it was, it was bonkers. Um, and then we released it, uh, the album. We did a tour with the Proclaimers, a support tour with the Proclaimers to, to promote that. Nice. And you've played for some massive people in your time as well ones that stand out on your list of credits Frank Sinatra being one I mean that's that must have been an amazing experience yeah I mean that was I mean again you know I'm sure lots of people listening to this will recognize that you know the the serendipity of certain situations and I was playing um I think a fortnightly rehearsal with Mark Bassey fantastic wonderful Mark Bassey and his band EPJ, and we rehe- used to rehearse every Monday morning at the Bull's Head in Barnes. And um, one day, Neil Morley, one of the trumpet players, said, oh, there's a someone looking for a, some saxophone players for a gig in Monte Carlo. I was like, oh. He said, should I give him your name? Went, That'd be amazing. So I met uh, the band leader in Covent Garden. This was my third audition. Um the first one, instantly, I was at, I was playing in Edinburgh Festival, and there was a, a note in the um, Fringe Club for a saxophone player needed for the Oxford University Review. So I met up with Simon Townley, the then MD, and um, he gave me the job um, over several pints of um, ale. Um, so that was my first audition. The second one was the Blocks Babes. The third one was um, with. Um, Tony Evans, the band leader, which basically involved walking around Covent Garden pubs um, and um, buying a dodgy watch, actually, for some reason. He bought one, so I felt <laughs> compelled to buy one too. I, I came home with a hangover and uh, a fake tag watch and a gig. <laughs> Most importantly, a gig. <laughs> yeah, so, and then we went to Monte Carlo and there's some fantastic people there, really wonderful musicians. You know, Howard McGill I met for the first time and um, it's from Friends for Life, you know, um, Howard's fantastic. And um, and uh, we just basically, we backed various people that came, either we were their support act or we augmented the band and um, Sinatra was was playing at the Croix Rouge, which is the the sort of, most significant and high-profile gig of the entire summer, um, which is a private invite-only thing. And there I was, you know, 10 years after picking up a saxophone for the first time. I was in Monte Carlo. It was was the same week. It was the first week of August, and I bought my first horn the first week of August, 10 years previously. And I was sitting there thinking, wow. That is incredible. 10 years almost to the day of picking up your instrument to playing in... Sinatra's band 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's lots and lots of people who I'm sure could have done a better job than me, but I was just in the right place at the right time, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. That's such a big part of what we do, isn't it? Being in the right place at the right time, just and knowing the right person, being on the the radar of someone just at that moment when they they need someone, it's a, a huge part of how we network and um, earn a living. Ultimately, yeah, and I, I guess you know you don't know you're in the right place until afterwards, do you? You know, and mm-hmm. it might be the wrong place because it may not not work out the way you intended, but. Um, I think if you're open to new things, that's going back to what we were talking about earlier about saying yes to everything. Um, and if you're genuinely curious and like, love the people and love music and love the scene, then it's, it's of a piece. It's very simple. Yeah, it sounds like that's, a big part of it for you it's it's about being part of that tribe and connecting with like-minded people and it's it's beyond the music itself and and a career it's you know it's it's actually more about being part of something bigger than that yeah it's joyous you know genuinely you know and to this day uh, i feel that way mm. and that's what i miss most about lockdown you know i spent a lot of time here in my studio working but i miss the hang yeah you know um yeah and we've all done tours where you spend maybe you know between four and eight hours a day traveling uh sometimes not every day but often or overnighters or whatever and you play for two hours yeah (laughs) a lot of hours in the day to hang out and kill you know and shoot breeze with folks yeah, absolutely. With like-minded people as well who yeah. enjoy the same things. Yeah. So just going back to your career in composition then, as I said already, you write a lot for television now. Can you just talk us through the, that process from first being booked for a job, receiving the brief, right through to when the show airs? What's what's your role and what's the process in that as a composer? Um, it varies enormously because sometimes uh, the brief is quite fluid and I think 90% of the job is interpreting maybe non-musical language and applying it to uh, the job and having an understanding of, of its placement uh, and its function. Whilst at, the, at all times maintaining ownership of the work mm. to the people that have commissioned you. Do you find that you need to have a, you know, a large palette of knowledge and with musical styles? And I, I was listening to some stuff on your your SoundCloud account, um, and there's there's everything on there from sort of dramatic orchestral string writing. There's a there's a hip hop track. Um, how important is that as a modern day composer writing for media? Um, I guess uh, I, I guess it comes about from not being wanted to be, never intending to be one thing. I wasn't avoiding anything. I just wanted to embrace everything. Um, and um, and I I read um, 
I read Quincy Jones' autobiography. A drummer friend of mine gave it to me. So I do have some non-musician friends. <laughs> um, In-joke there for everybody. Um, so, uh, yeah, and in it, Quincy, you know, his career is just bonkers. I mean, it's just crazy. And uh, I went to see him at the O2 just out of respect, you know, and uh, like last year or year before, it was, you know, because he's, he's incredible. And his career and his, what he came from, you know, his family upbringing and the hardships he faced and his precocious talent and his bravery and his hardships, you know, tense hardships. Um, it's just really, really, you know, um, incredibly captivating and inspiring. And he talked, there's one sentence in the book that stuck with me and maybe I, I may have misremembered it, but as I recall it, it's, um, he talked about being a 360 degree musician as a player, as a teacher, as a writer, as a band leader, as a arranger, as a fixer, as a whatever. But within that, I thought, yeah, that's, that's, I need to, I want to write music. And that's, that's my, that's beautifully put. It kind of just mm. felt like it, that was a kind of complete thing. And I had no idea how to do it, but I knew I wanted to. Yeah. Just in answer to your question, sort of more directly, in that kind of ram, roundabout rambling manner that I had, I think all the musical styles, you know, uh, are, are born of uh, an eclectic, interest in music and um if somebody asks you to do something then i'm inclined to say you know yeah and it's amazing what you can do when you need to and when there's a deadline yeah and i've really enjoyed that i really I, i've enjoyed that you know is it a case then sometimes of learning on the job in that case if you're if it's something that's maybe a new genre or style or something where you're less comfortable of actually using it as an opportunity to delve into it and discover and, and learn yeah yeah absolutely it's great you know i think there's a there's a kind of plurality uh in writing music that doesn't exist necessarily as a performer because you're anonymous within the medium which you aren't mm -hmm. you are semi-anonymous in an orchestra pit less so if you're on stage in a show less so of course if you're performing with a, a band or an act um but as a composer you know they don't know nobody knows who you are necessarily and you can you may not even get a credit on the on the show so a tv show so you can be anything i don't claim to be any kind of rap expert or hip-hop artist but <laughs> um yeah you can be you can do stuff yeah it's really fun did you did you see the Netflix documentary about Quincy? I've seen several documentaries about Quincy. I'm not sure if this is the new one, but it's, I mean, it's a phenomenon. Yeah, it, it's quite recent. It was maybe a year or two ago. Um, it was on, it's on Netflix. I think it's just called Quincy and it's incredible. Exactly as you say, just, you know, everything from the hardship of his upbringing right through to the, the people he worked with and the route that he took to, you know, get to where, where he ended up. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, I went to the O2. This is just a little aside. You can edit this out if you choose to. I went to the O2. Uh, the tickets were about £70 or £80. It's really expensive. 
But I thought, I have to see Quincy. This is the only time in my life I've ever had the opportunity to see him. So it said doors 7 for 7.30. So I got there on the dot. I was there at 5 to 7. I walked in, no one there. And there was a guy with a little sort of booth, portable booth, selling signed posters of the gig for £5. It's like, what? Just paid 70 or 80 pounds for this ticket and you're selling signed posters of the gig by the man himself for five quid. So I thought, oh, I've got to have one of those. So I walked, spent the rest of the night with a plastic bag with a poster in it, guarding it against being crumpled on the foot. It's nuts. So I've got it framed it's behind me. Nice. Was that the gig at the O2 where it ended up being a little bit controversial because it was when all of the Michael Jackson stuff had resurfaced and they had to sort of reprogram it a little bit with it was actually, what they were doing. It was before that. Um, right. It was a life in song to celebrate his birthday. And I think he came back to do a sort of Michael Jackson whatever, um, which I think that's when it met with some understandable controversy. Yeah. Um, but the but the gig was to celebrate, I think, his 85th birthday and there's a whole bunch of people. And the Metropole Orchestra were playing and sounded fantastic. But but he was just being interviewed. He just sort of sat in the corner. So and he conducted the probably the last tune. So yeah. it was just kind of like a Q and A, but with some amazing other acts on as well. So it was, yeah, it was just great. Sort of audience with type. Yeah, exactly affair. that. Yeah, 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 nice. Yeah. In terms of writing for television, then how does that how does that differ from writing in other settings? You know, what are the specific demands? Because I, I guess the music has to really add to the emotion or the the drama of what's happening on screen, but it can't ever get in the way or pull focus away from it. Is it, What are the specific challenges there for you as a writer? I think, um, I think you have to um, put aside any desire to put your stamp on it in some way. And I think being working in different genres of music is really helpful in that respect, um, because you, I've come to, I've learned over the years that um, your vision of the piece um, is not necessarily shared, and um, and it could be completely lost in the dub. Or lots of um, dubbing editors now ask for stems, so they might do a different mix. But a lot of the time, um, I think I I liken some of that music to sort of putting up your, it sounds a bit, this sounds really terrible, actually, it sounds really harsh, but it's like, it's so, if you really love what you've done, which I do, um, it's a real wrench handing it over. And, um, Mm. but you have to allow its kind of course, you know, um, I'd rather harshly likened it to putting up your favourite child being a favourite child in a in an orphanage you know <laughs> so I've given you every chance I can but now your future is not in my hands anymore yeah that sounds really terrible saying that out loud now so I'm not sure <laughs> entirely comfortable having disclosed that but um, I'll leave you to be the judge of that <laughs> but I think yeah, in broader sense um, you just have to um, be confident in what you do and uh and have a clear vision and just listen and understand its point of delivery. You know, it isn't mm. the show. If it's a title sequence, it's different because you're, you know, my first gig was um, LK Today and they said, we want music 
that if somebody's making a cup of tea in the kitchen or they're in another part of the house and they hear this this title sequence, they stop what they're doing and they know that it's, you know, time for Lorraine Kelly. Yeah, I didn't realise you'd written that. My mother will be thrilled. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to give your mum a thrill, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, that's my first telly job. So you mentioned there about sometimes the process involves handing over the stems or you might be mixing it yourself. So be, beyond the writing stage, typically how involved are you in the other aspects of it? Are you writing and recording and sequencing at home? Are you involved with sessions with live musicians? Do you book it, the live musicians? How does all of well, how do those relationships work? I'd love to say that there's an enormous black and white picture of me conducting in studio in, in, uh, at Abbey Road or Air, you know, with a baton and, um, uh, you know, 80 adoring, humbled <laughs> musicians listening to this <laughs> fabulous score that I've written. But I can honestly say that's never, ever happened and it almost certainly never will. And I can't conduct anyway, so it's probably <laughs> better give that to a job to a grown-up. But um, uh, I've... I've got um, online sessions have exploded in recent years, and I've I played I've played lots and lots myself, and um, uh, I don't have I've never had the budget or the time to do you know um, something fancy that I might want to put on social media. The um, the reality is far more mundane, mm. um, and I've got friends to play on stuff when I've needed a trombone or a trumpet um, or violin or a tuba. So, um, but the nature of telework is that everything's pulled around all the time and the edit, you're working. I had this rather romantic notion that, you know, working in telly was going to be sit around with the director to have a spotting session and then dinner and, you know, then another spotting session. But the fact is that you're writing music as they as they work on the format of the show and the edit. And so you're basically trying to keep up with them and, um, and not get fired. Um, (laughs) I think the emphasis on not being fired uh, probably wins. Um, (laughs) And, and just keep writing, 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 writing. And, um, and then you just deliver it and you do maybe deliver versions and, and then ultimately, you know, you, I, I, yeah, I, I think most of the time you don't have, much saying it. Hmm. Are you normally writing then just from a brief rather than to footage? You you're not actually scoring to to sing the visuals. Yeah, it depends. But um, I mean, for things like Napoleon, the Napoleon uh, documentary series, which is absolutely fantastic, wonderful director called David Barry, who was absolutely great. Um, I was working on sort of rough cuts, and I had a shooting script, so I basically I had. A, yeah, I had an idea of what it was and the shape of it and the the arc of the of the three one hour programs, um, and um, yeah, worked on that really. Um, worked very hard on that actually because I was, uh, had to get a, create a huge amount of content in a short time. So I was getting up about five a.m. and um, going to bed about eleven or twelve for a couple of weeks. How is the how is that part of the music industry changing? Obviously, with technology being what it is, and people being able to do so much more at home these days, 
you know, even pre-pandemic um, home recording studios are, are the norm for many musicians now. How how is that how has that changed in the time that you've been involved in it and how do you see that continuing to change in the years to come? Well it's it's sort of almost fourteen years to the day since the first my first sort of telly I uh, ident um TX and um I think um in the interim um I think what's happened is this happened this started a long time ago but um I think there's growth of libraries um, and blanket agreements with certain content providers for music um, means that there's a huge choice of production music available, and it's and people are working. Those companies are working very hard at making a seamless integration with film editors because film editors are almost well are pretty much dubbing editors now in the way that you know musicians aren't just instrumentalists they're producers and accountants and composers mm-hmm. and teachers and you know lots of plate spinning going on that's true in other industries too of course and and in, in film and telly um film editors are sort of the key person so in uh, i know that you know the plugins are being uh, built into video editing platforms, you know, the industry standard video editing platforms that allow you to create a, a cue sheet and drag and drop music from huge libraries. So there's a massive there's massive competition for that for that, for that work and um, and it's quite it's very difficult to navigate that because they don't necessarily need a composer. They have this huge I mean Universal Music have got half a million tracks. And they'll build a playlist for you uh, based on your brief, and you can just—it's all kind of pretty much semi-automatic. So, mm. I think that's the biggest change. Yeah, and with with people starting out looking at this as a possible career, is it best then to go into the library production music um, as a, at least as a starting point these days? I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I. 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 I, um, I don't know what the best way to do it is. I think it's different for everybody, and um, this is. It's not helpful at all, but I believe it to be true, that. You find your own career somehow or other. There's lots of, you know, if I'd gone to a music college or, I, I've been a composer's assistant, then that would have been. A great platform to do that but um i didn't um so mm. i can only speak for myself um as much as i just wrote wrote and wrote um i just got better at it i hope um i'm looking at you now sitting in your lovely home studio which looks like the perfect man cave <laughs> um <laughs> what what sort of what's your setup there what do you what are you able to do in that space I can do pretty much. I mean, everything. Um, I've got all my all my horns, my flutes and clarinets and saxophones, and um, a couple of computers. I actually did a production music album last year, uh, which was sort of came about through a casual conversation for a company I've been working 
off, off and off for eight years, ten years in Soho, and I popped into the new studio and met up with the new head of production and just said hi and he showed me around the place and we talked about ideas and stuff and I went away and just sort of worked on something and so I was recording all during lockdown I was recording sort of baritone saxophone, piccolo, bass clarinet, soprano, flute, lots of clarinet. So they're all out here. Full toy shop was out here. <laughs> so that was good and I and I got uh, a wonderful tuba player to do some online sessions for me and incorporated that into the into the album which was really great fun so um with modern techniques and plugins you can denoise audio and get beautiful clean clean signal path Mm -hmm. i've got a lovely bg1 preamp courtesy of uh dave liddell who gave me the heads up a dear friend and great musician trombonist um so that's my only bit of outboard gear that and one microphone all right that was gonna be my next question to you if you're a sucker for buying gear for your studio um well of course you know i mean who (laughs) who isn't you know uh but i'm pragmatic about it Uh, a friend of mine said to me years ago quite a few years ago he said the akg 414 is like the swiss army knife of microphones mm-hmm. you can record anything on them it's like oh okay good so i looked in the, the readers ads in sound on sound and i found a brand new 414 cameraman i bought two of to fit onto his video camera and so i bought one of them and i've been using it ever since and i had a had a rode nt2 which i gave to my son uh, but I just stopped using it. So, um, and I and I bought the BG one a few years after that. So, good mic, great preamp, and some denoising software, and um, you get an amazing, uh, amazing audio. Um, if people want to listen to some of your work, where's the best place to do that? Well, my um, my youngest son said a few months ago. He said, oh, yeah, I looked at your, your website, Dad. He said, it's very 90s, isn't it? So, <laughs> so I was thinking, oh, my God, very noughties, maybe. He wasn't born in the 90s. So uh, and I, I kind of felt, I, I was kind of grateful to him, but begrudgingly so. Cause, um, <laughs> so I, I thought it was quite cool, but clearly it wasn't. And so it's just being revamped. But in answer to your question, um, there's a website. It's nortonsmith.com. Nortonsmith.com. Great. Um I've just got a couple of almost quick fire type questions to, sure. to finish off. Um, is there a, a significant point in your career, memorable moment or a pivotal moment where, you know, it really changed the, the course of what you were doing? Um, I think um, I was in a swimming pool in the south of France uh, talking to somebody who happened to be a television producer and they were talking about working on revamping a TV show. And I said, why don't I write the music? And they went, okay. (laughs) So I did. Uh, And um, that was quite a moment because I had no idea if I could do it. But, uh, But there's been lots of them. I think, you know, we all know as musicians, there's been lots of moments where you, where you um, think, ooh, Okay, here I am. Yeah. 
that's a good lesson and you know if you don't ask you don't get sometimes you just have to put it out there and what's the worst that can happen yeah yeah um but it was great you know it was it was a uh, i guess you've got to be brave haven't you mm. um do you have a single piece of advice that you would give to someone starting out in this industry yeah that's 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 an interesting question i think i can only i i, I wouldn't consider myself in a position to offer any advice all i can offer is my own experiences but for better or worse and i think uh i think i was very guilty of of um worrying about the next thing rather than enjoying the now mm -hmm. but i think maybe that's a function of youth and current you know age and experience but I guess it's hard to enjoy things when you're younger because you're not sure where you are and what you're doing and how long it's going to continue for and everything's quite uncertain. I mean, nothing's changed, by the way. I'm just older. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So that, that doesn't really answer your question, does it? But that's the best I can, best I can do. Yeah, that's good. And it's so true because, you know, as self-employed freelance people, you are constantly... I mean, if you could be doing the gig of a lifetime that lasts for three weeks and you probably aren't going to fully enjoy it because you're always thinking about well, what am I going to do next what's what's going to pay the mortgage the next for the next month yeah I, I guess you know I guess it's that that thing of living in the future a little bit you know and if you are self-employed and if you are master of your own career as much as any of us can be because we all rely on you know someone's benefaction or, or the phone call or whatever recommendation whatever form it takes but um, yeah, it's quite, yeah, I guess that's, I think I, I can only just say that I was very, not guilty, but I was very, I'm very mindful of the fact that I could have enjoyed, just took a moment and just gone, yeah, this mm. is great. Yeah. Is that something that you you think that you do now? I'm getting better at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hard to un un undo that because it's. I feel hardwired to to next rather than now. Mm. Um, and I think this, this lockdown has been difficult because for lots of people in lots of different ways. Um, because being a musician is a huge part of my identity, and um, it, yeah, it's what I am. So um, if you don't get to do that in the way that you know or it just simply isn't the option to do it as as is now. That's quite hard to sit with. And just finally, do you have any recommendations? And these can be anything; doesn't have to be music related. Uh, ju just something that you know has been influential in your life, or that you've gained value from that you think other people should check out. Well, I would definitely recommend reading uh, Q's autobiography because, if nothing else. You know, uh, if you love music, you can't help but love that book. Um, and um, I guess professionally, well, you know, it's about just being on time, never complaining, delivering silently and without rancor. <laughs> <laughs> Even when you're put under the spot, it's like suddenly they 
someone's changed something. I'm thinking about composition stuff, you know, where something changes and, you know, there's a whopping great edit in something that you made this beautiful piece of music to sync to. And, but, you know, you could, that's why working in audio is less helpful than working in MIDI because you can chop and change it and make it work. Mm. Right up to the wire. You can't do that with, you know, an 80 piece orchestra. Yeah. So, so I'm told. Not that I would know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have got an HP orchestra, but it's under it's under the keyboard somewhere, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's in a folder on this house. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, Nick, thank you so much. It's been really great to chat to you about all of that, and um, really, really useful as well. Great to hear your your story and your take on everything. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It's a genuinely uh, uh, an honour and I'm really grateful to be asked. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please do share it with other people who might also enjoy it. Subscribing, rating us with five stars and reviewing are all really helpful ways to support the podcast too. Spread the word and speak to you again next week. Mm-hmm.